Tom Wood Show, episode 1490. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you have a website, don't let it be a lazy bum. Make that website carry its own weight. Monetize that baby. I've got a free over-the-shoulder video where I show you about a half dozen ways that I do that on my sites. Check it out at tomwoods.com slash monetize. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here. Scott Horton is with us today, releasing this episode on September 11th. And it seems to me that he's a good person to talk to about this. He is the libertarian foreign policy expert, host of The Scott Horton Show. You can check him out over at scotthorton.org. Also, uh, anti-war radio on KPFK 90.7 in Los Angeles. He is the managing director, I think, of the Libertarian Institute. I always forget these titles. He's kind of a jack-of-all-trades at antiwar.com. He's the author of Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. Just a great guy all around. Smart, decent, hard worker, fighter. And I want to talk to him on 9-11. Scott, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Here we are on the 18th anniversary of 9-11. And I just thought, Scott Horton, before we talk about that, although I guess somewhat related because the whole 9-11 narrative and what we're supposed to believe about it actually has a lot to do with Ron Paul because his first presidential campaign brought out a lot of this discussion about blowback and all that sort of stuff and, and Michael Scheuer and the CIA and all that. So it's not entirely unrelated. Uh, but I do want to start off with a word about your book. Uh, well, to explain it, it's a Ron Paul book, but it's a Scott Horton book. What's in this book? And it's coming right out. In fact, it may be out this very day that people are hearing this. Yes, it should in italics and maybe in bold be on Amazon.com by the time your people hear this. If not, very, very soon, you'll be able to find it there and all the links at the Libertarian Institute. It's The Great Ron Paul, The Scott Horton Show Interviews, 2004 through 2019. It's a transcript of all 38 interviews that I've done with Dr. Paul, as well as uh, his and Dan McAdams' interview of me about Fool's Errand, my Afghanistan book uh, back in 2018, and the speech I gave last November down in Houston, which was all about the greatness of Ron, essentially, is also in there. And it's really great. And yes, you're right. Uh, the terror war is at the center of a lot of it. But anyway, as far as the greatness of it, well, it's Ron Paul. I mean, and this guy, he really is the greatest American hero ever. He really has done more to spread the principles of liberty around. And not just that, true history and sound economic theory and all of the rest of this stuff, you know, uh, and and a peaceful foreign policy. Uh, he's done more to spread that, you know, set of core libertarian principles to humanity than anyone else has ever done. And, uh, you know, there's What's no the way to repay that debt. Yeah. What's it called? It's called the great Ron Paul. Wow. And, uh, yeah, everybody's going to love it. It's just great. And he's good on economics. He's good on Korea. He's good on Iran. He's good on everything. Well, as soon as this comes out, I'll make sure if, if it's, at the time we release this episode, it will be linked at tomwoods.com slash 1490. Uh, if not, it'll be linked there just as soon as I get the link. So tomwoods.com slash 1490, I'll link to that book. Which and by the way, by the end of the week, um, I really plan on also having done Sheldon Richmond's new book, which we're actually going to have to find a new title because it turns out Mondo Weiss actually just published a book with the title we were going to use, Why Palestine Matters. But it's a collection of essays by Sheldon Richman 
from 1989 through 94, and then 2014 through current day, all about Israel and Palestine. And it's the best. It is the definitive libertarian take on uh, the history of what the hell's going on there, man. It's really good. And uh, it's going to change a lot of people's minds. And I, you know, I'll send you one as soon as I have them, Tom, I promise. I huh. love it. I would love to do, I, I've done an episode where it was a debate episode. I've done a couple of debate episodes pertaining to Israel mm -hmm. uh, that have been okay, um, but where you know one debater was was sometimes they're talking past each other, or whatever. I'd really like to get somebody who would be willing to talk. I, mean, I don't know if, if if Sheldon's up for this or not, but somebody who'd be willing to take the other side from Sheldon, and we can really hash it out. I'd really like to do that. Yeah. Well, so, I did hear that Jeremy Hammond, you know, so-called debate, but it was just Jeremy crushing that other guy mercilessly. Um, and that, that was really on the origins of Israel. And I, I would want this to be, well, this is a lot about that too. Well, you know what? I'll tell you what, man, you know what? You should read the book and yeah, I think you'll probably right. just we'll interview him about it. I don't know if you need I to have much of that. a debate. There ain't much of a debate. <laughs> you'll see. But, but I really do. I really do want to, I would, I'd, I'd like to, because I haven't done a debate in a while and I'm, I'm getting kind of frustrated about that. I'd like, I to mean, look, it. the but, problem with it is, is the Zionist position is based on pure dishonesty. There's no way for them to justify what they're doing without just sitting there lying. And so there's not really an honest debate to be had. If Palestinians are human men with natural rights, then what Israel is doing is wrong. Simple as that. And you'll see that when you read Sheldon's book. I mean, it's just and, and it's great. And it's Sheldon Richmond. So it's, you know, it's not a liberal or left take or some kind of paleo right take. It's a extremely libertarian take by the same guy who wrote the book on guns, homeschool and abolishing the income tax. You know? Oh uh, uh, yeah. No, no kidding. Okay. All right. I'll definitely take a look. Uh, send me an electronic copy and I'll, I'll take a look. All right. I'm having you on today because of course it's nine 11. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I want to get into that. I mean, first I want to start with, we all know what happened on nine, the attacks of nine 11. We, we, we all lived through it, but why it happened is a question that it's in a way it's like the financial crisis in that there really wasn't as much examination of why it happened as you would think there would be mm -hmm. major financial crisis. And you get somebody like Paul Krugman saying, you know, far too many people are fixated on how we got into this mess as opposed to how we get out of it. But, you know, those two things might be related. Right. Maybe the way you get out of it has a little something to do with how you get into it. But likewise for 9-11, if we did bother to get any explanation, it was uh, they hate us because we're awesome and we have the First Amendment and women wear jeans. And like mm -hmm. it was just a, an insult. Um, and Ron Paul was trying to say there might be – the explanation might be a smidge more sophisticated than that. So even though this is well-trodden ground, on this particular anniversary, I think it's worth revisiting – why did 9-11 happen? Yeah. Well, look, you know, I'll give respect to the truthers here. I disagree with them. I really don't think it was an inside job. And there's a lot of stuff that still needs to be explained and all that. I admit that. But I think that the real point is that Dick Cheney might as well have done it. Or for people who think the Israelis did it or whatever, that the fact of the matter is they exploited it to such a degree and with a level of cynicism that is essentially equal to them doing the atrocity themselves. I mean, they, to me, the big 9-11 conspiracy is, of course, framing Iraq 
trying to make it seem like Saddam Hussein's government had anything to do with it. It was the giant open conspiracy right in front of everyone to say that this act of retribution by a bunch of Saudis and Egyptians who are mad at us for supporting their governments and using their territory to kill Iraqis and and supporting, of course, Israel and their atrocities against the Lebanese and the Palestinians, which had a lot to do with Al-Qaeda's war against the United States, and trying to turn that and say, oh, no, it was the Iraqis that did it. Saddam Hussein's head of intelligence met with Mohammed Atta in Prague, in Czechoslovakia, as Dick Cheney called it, which hadn't existed in 10 years at the time. But anyway, um, and then just overall trying to essentially give your mom the impression that Saddam must have had something to do with this. That was what it was about. You know, it was the excluded middle campaign where George Bush would say, why do we have to do Iraq? Because of September 11th. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi. And then he'd say, because that day we learned that from now on, we have to start all the wars instead of just waiting around for someone to attack us first. But meanwhile, during that giant pregnant pause, you thought he said because Iraq did the attack. And so we have to get retribution from that. And of course, since he's George Bush and he can't talk very well, you sort of... You know, you make up the words that you thought he meant to say, and you sort of fill in the gap for him. Why do we have to do Iraq? Because of September 11th. And as and I met civilians, I've told the story a million times, but it's so meaningful to me. This wealthy, successful, educated, very upper middle class gentleman riding in my cab at the time said to me, but if Iraq didn't do 9-11, then why would we be attacking them then? Yeah, and because the idea was that, of course, they did, because the president is leading me to believe that. And you're just a cab driver saying that ain't so. And and yet, if you sussed it out, you go, well, wait a minute. We didn't ask for a U.N. resolution to attack Afghanistan. We didn't wait a year and a half to attack Afghanistan, asking the French and the Chinese for permission on the U.N. Security Council, did we? No. Why are we doing that on Iraq? Because there's no way to spin this as a defensive retaliatory strike for 9-11 because Iraq didn't do 9-11. The reason we're going to the UN Security Council and begging the Chinese and the French and the Russians to, and, you know, to approve our aggression is because it's aggression. And to start a war without a UN Security Council resolution is against the law. And so Colin Powell and Tony Blair were afraid that they would go to prison if they didn't at least try to get a U.N. Security Council resolution. Why? Because it was an aggressive war. We're the Japanese with the day of infamy attack on a country that never did anything to us. At least FDR deliberately provoked that attack. Saddam Hussein's regime never did anything to the USA. That was why they had to lie. That was why they had to pretend that some aluminum tubes that the Italians sold them for some Katusha rockets to fire out of the backs of their pickup trucks were centrifuges for their giant Manhattan project that we couldn't seem to find but must exist somewhere. This farce that's got a million people killed since then. So sorry, does that answer your question? What was the question? Well, the question was, why did it happen? So why it happened, as I was saying, I kind of alluded to it. It was... Blowback. These were guys that had been supported by first Carter and then Ronald Reagan in the 1980s to help fight the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. The Pashtun Mujahideen were fighting them and the Saudis and Pakistanis and the CIA 
all help round up a bunch of extremist jihadist types from all around the Arab world and sent them off to Afghanistan to help fight the Soviets. Then right around the same time that was over was the same time America was stabbing their ally Saddam Hussein in the back the first time in 1991 when they invited him to go ahead and take the northern oil fields of Kuwait. But then when he went too far and seized all of Kuwait, the British essentially panicked and forced the Americans, you know, guilted George Bush and embarrassed George Bush into starting that war. Um, and at that time, the Mujahideen essentially turned on the United States. Bin, the Bin Ladenites, who, you know, the Arab Afghan army uh, was incensed that the king, Fahd of Saudi Arabia, had allowed white Christian American combat forces to be stationed on the Holy Arabian Peninsula, land of Mecca, Medina, in order to fight this war, when after all, he had his own little army, and he wanted to go and, and use the jihadists to go and expel Iraq from Kuwait, and the king had turned him down. And then, not only that, but quite contrary to then-Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney's promise to the king that America would leave as soon as the war was over, they stayed. And that was because, of course, as we talked about before, George Bush Sr. had encouraged that Shiite uprising and then betrayed it when he realized that the Iranians were taking control of it. And so, but then Saddam's ruthless slaughter of the Shia that Bush allowed, as the Americans occupied southern Iraq, they stood back and watched these guys all get killed. You can see the Marky Mark movie, Three Kings, all about it. And, um, and so, but then that became the excuse to keep the no-fly zones over Iraq. Now it's America and Britain's responsibility to keep the Saddam Hussein government from dominating the north and the south of his own country because that included the Kurds in their uprising up in the north as well. And then the basing, the permanent basing and the garrisoning of Saudi soil by American foreign and, and different religion, uh, you know, having combat troops, that was the major motivation for Al-Qaeda to attack the United States. And in fact, Paul Wolfowitz said it over and over again. Ron Paul likes to quote Paul Wolfowitz on this. But Wolfowitz's argument was, that's why we need to move the troops out of Saudi into Iraq. We'll just move them a few hundred miles north and it'll be fine. The Iraqis, they won't mind, I guess, uh, if the Saudis do. But that was why they attacked us. And if you and so the, or that was their major motivation for turning on us. So that's part of it. Right. OK. But then it's a strategy as well. And. Well, no, so let me get to the rest of the motivation because Michael Scheuer has summed this up very well in his book, Imperial Hubris, but you can read all the Bin Laden uh, declarations of war from 96 and 98 and the rest of the statements said the same things over and over and over again, okay? The, the problem was that America was occupying Saudi in order to bomb and blockade Iraq, killing all those civilians, we think the price is worth it and all that, as well as of course, backing the local tyrannies, the Saudi King Fahd that bin Laden hated, and of course, Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, uh, uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri's nemesis and so forth, right? And then there's the support for Israel and their you know generation-long war in Lebanon and their generations-long occupation of the Palestinians and oppression of them. And then there's support for or pressure on the governments that we control to keep oil prices artificially low in order to subsidize our economy at their expense. And then, of course, supporting these kings who spend all the money on solid gold airplanes and all this garbage while their people uh, go without. And then 
Uh, last on their list was turning a blind eye or saying essentially nothing when Russia, China, and India persecute Muslims, while the Americans go around claiming to be the champions of human rights. When actually that's not true in a way, um, you know, well, America played both sides of that. Of course, America backed the Mujahideen in the war in Bosnia against, uh, you know, Russia's allies, the Serbs. And our friend Eric Margulies has reported uh, and told me that in the summer of 2001, he saw CIA training camps in Afghanistan where they were training Uyghurs for use against China as late as summer 2001. So that's not exactly true, but more or less. And that was the that was the motivation of bin Laden. But more importantly, that was his propaganda campaign. You know, as as Shoyer has emphasized this, he didn't waste time demonizing American culture. Because as much as people might agree with that, although, you know, a lot of people in the Middle East seem, and around the world seem to admire our culture for whatever reasons, um, you know, possibly the Bill of Rights they think we have or something. Um, but that that won't motivate anyone to want to fight us. If you want to motivate people to want to fight us, well, ask the FBI, who's entrapped hundreds and hundreds of people into fake terrorist attacks against the United States. And what do the FBI informants say to these people? They say, look at American foreign policy. Look at all the people who are dying in Syria, in Iraq, in Afghanistan. Don't you want to do something about it? That's how the FBI entraps some idiot. They don't say, don't you hate women in blue jeans? You know, as you put it, don't you hate people being free and leaving you alone? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, that was never it. And so it's, you know, people emphasize radical Islam, that these guys are Salafists and Wahhabists and that these are fundamentalist, very right-wing branches of Sunni Islam. And that's true as, again, Michael Scheuer, who for people who aren't familiar, he's a very right-wing hawk. He's no libertarian. He's a very right-wing hawk. He has no reason to love Wahhabists whatsoever, but he just says, look, that's who they are, but that's not why they target us. Uh, You know, it's what we do. The reason they fight us is not their radical religious beliefs. It's their radical politics. And their radical politics are driven by reaction to American foreign policy. We've already been at war with them all along, mostly through their governments that we support. And so that's why they hate us, because we're too close of allies to their regimes that they want to overthrow. Now, people go, oh, well, that's why we got to fight them. They'll overthrow and bin Ladenites take over the whole Middle East. Except, really, because at the time of September 11th, there was only 400 of these guys in Afghanistan. Maybe another four or 500 spread around the Middle East. They didn't have the power to overthrow a single thing anywhere ever. They never controlled so much as a county. Bin Laden lived on a farm outside of Kandahar City out as far and, and had his little lion's den hideout in the White Mountains there as far as you could ever get from anywhere. These guys had no power to create some Islamo-fascist caliphate. There were a bunch of states in the way, states run by secular strongmen mostly, and mostly backed by the United States as well, not all of them. And so that was their motive for attacking us. Now, the strategy for attacking us, as Ron Paul has gotten right over and over again, based on his readings of Scheuer and the rest of the news going on here, uh, it's pretty obvious They were trying to provoke a reaction. They weren't trying to get America to turn and run and hide. 
I mean, as Scheuer said, well, okay, maybe plan A was we'd like the American people to say, okay, enough already. If the cost of empire is losing 3,000, then let's not have one. But they weren't counting on that. What they were counting on was that America would go crazy and do something stupid because we had already helped them set the precedent. This is how they, certainly from their point of view, if you ask a Republican, it was Ronald Reagan that did it. But if you ask them, they were the ones who destroyed the Soviet Union. They didn't just bog them down and drive them out of Afghanistan. They sat there and watched the USSR godless, communist, atheist dictatorship dissolve into thin air like some kind of miracle. And all they did was believe in a law and shoot with AK-47s and Stinger missiles until the Soviets were gone. And they wanted to replicate that same policy, that same strategy against the United States. And they said so before September 11th that they are trying to get us to invade Afghanistan. And this is a big part of the reason the Taliban didn't like them. The Taliban was like, hey, we got our Islamo-fascist caliphate. They weren't quite done consolidating power over the whole country yet. But, you know, a radical becomes a conservative the moment he seizes the capital city. Now bin Laden's here trying to pick a fight with the global superpower because bin Laden and, you know, bin Laden, it was he was sort of like a racist in a way. Like these Taliban, these Pashtuns are such sort of redneck hillbillies from out in the middle of nowhere, while bin Laden and his guys are very worldly, educated, sophisticated guys. I mean, he had a PhD in engineering, was the son of a billionaire. I mean, Al-Zawahiri was a surgeon from Cairo. And they sort of looked at these Afghans like, kill them all and let God sort them out. You got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. And if the Soviets killed a million Afghans in their war in the 80s, but that led to the fall of the Soviet Union, then... He, Bin Laden essentially had the exact same position as a big Brzezinski. Screw it. Who cares? It's worth it. And so let's do it again. And if another, if the Americans are going to kill another million Afghans, which they have not, but if they're going to kill another million, oh, well, if they're true believers, they'll go to heaven anyway. And, um, and if it ends up bringing America down to bankruptcy, and dissolving our empire and sending us home the hard way as it worked against the Soviet Union, then it'll be worth it. And that was the strategy to get America mad, to get America to chase them to the far end of the world and get bogged down in their sand trap, getting sniped from their mountaintops until the dollar breaks. And then as again, I'm just quoting Scheuer over and over again, because he happens to be an authoritative source and right about all of this stuff. He says, Going to Iraq, that's just the hoped for but unexpected gift to bin Laden. I mean, you you got to be kidding me. You're going to go ahead and get rid of the man that bin Laden called the socialist infidel, Saddam Hussein? And you're going to take, you're going to create an entire new battle space a thousand miles to the west of where they had been previously exiled in Afghanistan? And then never mind then, when... That is such a disaster and leads to Obama taking the policy of actually taking al-Qaeda's side in Libya, Syria, and in Yemen. Uh, the, the latter of which policy uh, Donald Trump continues to this day. And so now, you know, at the height of the Islamic State, which Obama's Syria policy ended up creating in eastern Syria and western Iraq, they had, you know, as many as 100,000 fighters, uh, you know, many of them conscripts, but still in their army. 
And there are, you know, at least tens of thousands of these guys now, where before there were 400 guys. George Bush could have killed the 400 guys at Tora Bora and called the whole thing off. In fact, he could have negotiated their extradition, as I show in the book and as great journalists have documented. Um, but even if you say, no, we had to kill somebody, fine. The whole war still could have been over by Christmas 2001, you know, by February 02 at the latest. Forget about it. And they did this. And, and you know, there are plenty of people who were there who have said the same thing. You know, Gary Bernson, who helped lead the CIA war there at Tora Bora and who was called out of there in the middle of the fight, by the way. But he has said, yep, yeah, I mean, honestly, this whole thing could have been over in a few months. We didn't have to have a war on terrorism, quote unquote, at all, where, you know, Bush and Obama have gone and targeted all these sovereign governments all around the Middle East and created all these new battle spaces for these crazies. So then to, okay, so we did the motivation and we did the strategy Right. But then, so what was the real goal of the bin Ladenites? What the bin Ladenites wanted was, of course, power and influence. Right. They wanted to win. So, what they wanted to see was the Middle East, uh, the political dictators of the Middle East, America's puppets destabilized, uh, check. They wanted to see the populations of the Middle East radicalized in terms of religion and in terms, of course, of politics. No problem there. They wanted to see the American empire bankrupted and discredited and sent on the run. And we're obviously in the process of that fall right now. And so we have not, you know, Al-Qaeda has not put Zawahiri in charge of Egypt and bin Laden in charge of Saudi Arabia. So we have not, you know, accomplished their main main goals, uh, their very specific main goals there, but they were playing the long game. I mean, quite truthfully, Bin Laden didn't care if he died in this thing. He quite expected to die in this thing and not see the end of it. He wanted to see the Americans turn the Middle East upside down, and he could not, he would not have believed, especially, think of this, Tom, and I'm sorry, because I know we've been over and over this on your show, but still, just at the time when Obama was killing Osama, May 2011, at that moment, he was taking Osama bin Laden's side in Libya and in Syria. And to great effect, you know, to, you know, the chaos that reigns in Libya to this day, including jihadist militias everywhere and in Syria, leading ultimately to the rise of the Islamic State and then Iraq War III to destroy it. I mean, this is just, he, bin Laden could never have hoped for and expected what America has done for them so far. And then now listen to every single hawk in D.C. And what do they want? They want to target the Shia. They want to destroy the Houthis in Yemen. They want to destroy, I don't know what they think they're going to do about Shiite power in Iraq. The, the Israelis have been bombing them lately, our allies there. Uh, they want to, uh, you know, limit and fight and hit Hezbollah in Lebanon and in Syria. And if they can, they want to get a regime change in Iran. They want to start a war with Iran. Well, there's nothing that Al-Qaeda could possibly want to see more right now besides Zawahiri taking control of, of Egypt himself or some kind of daydream like that than to see the Americans kill and overthrow the Shiite Ayatollahs of Iran and throw Persia into chaos and sectarian war. So for all the 9-11 truthers, they might as well turn it all around the other way. That in fact, 
It's not that Al-Qaeda works for the CIA. It's that the entire American military establishment works for them and does everything that they want it to do. And of course, that's I'm being facetious, but the point is that this is what bin Laden was expecting to happen. I quote in the book and numerous times during speeches and so forth, bin Laden's son Omar, not um, his terrorist uh, uh, son, who was just killed actually a few weeks ago, but a, a decent guy, son of his, gave an interview to Rolling Stone in 2010 in a bar in Damascus where he explained, he says, I was in Afghanistan in the summer of 2001 and in the lead up to, uh, oh, well, and even before that, in, in the year 2000. And that during the election of the year 2000, bin Laden was rooting for George W. Bush because bin Laden could see that here is essentially a perfect mark. Here is a guy who will take full advantage and exploit the crisis to the nth degree, as he put it in his 2004 speech, and the only people that benefit are certain politically connected corporations at the expense of the rest of us. That's how bin Laden himself put it. That George Bush would take full advantage and exploit the crisis to essentially fall into the same trap that Jimmy Carter and Zbigniew Brzezinski and Ronald Reagan helped lure the Soviets into back in the 1980s and would help to destroy the American empire the hard way. And so there you have it. Here we are, 20 years of this, uh, you know, somewhere around seven to eight to nine trillion dollars wasted, thousands of soldiers killed, uh, you know, 7,000 in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, far more than a million people. I don't know if anyone ever really will know but in, if you count up Iraq, Yemen, Libya, Syria, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, you're talking well over a million people, million and a half, two, I don't know, absolute chaos. And as we talked about before, with Iraq War II and the Shiite sectarian cleansing campaign against the Sunnis that was aided and abetted by George W. Bush and Donald Rumsfeld and Robert Gates that whole time, that that has created an absolutely intolerable situation from the point of view of the Sunni kings of Arabia, but also one that they can do nothing about. And so that guarantees that Western Iraq, Sunni Stan, essentially will remain in chaos for the rest of our lifetimes because the Saudis and their friends are going to continue to back the Sunni insurgency there forever because they can't stand the fact that George Bush gave the capital city to the Shiites. All right, Scott, let's imagine... The impossible scenario of a President Scott Horton in office September 11th, 2001. What does Scott Horton do? Mm. Well, I'll kind of cheat and pass this over to Harry Brown. Harry Brown. I asked him yeah. the same question, <laughs> yeah. and he actually ran for president in the year 2000. So conceivably, in some other reality, it could have been Harry Brown. And his answer was, well, first of all, oh, and I've asked Ron Paul this too. He says the same stuff pretty much. First of all, the attack wouldn't have happened because I would have called all of our troops out of Arabia and I would have cut off all support for the Israelis and I would have taken away the motivation for the attack. But hypothetically, if it was too late to call off for whatever reason and the attack had happened anyway, then the idea is that, you know, first do everything you can to negotiate. What Bush said was no negotiations, hand them over. That's it. And the Taliban said, well, we have a couple conditions. How about some evidence? How about we turn him over to a Muslim country? Bush said, no negotiations. They said, well, okay, how about we turn him over to any other third country? How about we turn him over to Pakistan? No negotiations. 
So, you know, that it could have been done. It really could have been done. Uh, but instead, you know, the next step, and this is how I argue it in the book too, is if you don't buy that, then the war could have been very narrowly focused on Al-Qaeda, not on a regime change against the Taliban. And inside the Bush government, by the way, Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell and Dick Cheney and these guys, they were all arguing about this. And there were many people saying the same thing that I'm telling you right now, that they didn't have to focus on the Taliban. They could have peeled the Taliban away from Al-Qaeda by just focusing on Al-Qaeda. And, and, and there are plenty of indications I talk about in the book about uh, how easily that could have gone, where they could have just killed the Al-Qaeda guys and whatever fellow travelers there at Tora Bora and called the whole thing off right there. Now, uh, Ron Paul and Harry Brown both said they would have done a letter of mark and reprisal, not one of these phony authorizations to use military force. They would have gone for Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11, I guess, Phrase 2 or whatever it is, that after the declaration of war that Congress has the power of essentially to declare war against groups that are less than states, against criminals, against bandits, pirates on the high seas, traditionally is what it was for. But it meant that if you have one of these letters, you can aggress and it's not a crime. You have a mandate from Congress. And so this could have been privateers, you know, mercenaries, but it could have just as easily been special operations forces, uh, Delta Force and Navy SEALs and, and Army Rangers and whoever you want to send to do it, but uh, it would have been a much more narrow writ. And then, and I quote in the book a great speech that Ron Paul gave because he actually introduced a letter of mark and reprisal in the fall of 2001. And he gave a great speech where he explained exactly explicitly that this allows us to hold the responsible accountable while at the same time demonstrating to the rest of the Arab and Muslim world that no, bin Laden is wrong about us. We are not the evil empire. We do not want to destroy Islam. We do not. We are not at war against your civilization. And because we're not, but we need them to understand that. That what bin Laden said about us is just not true. And so they don't have a reason to continue this kind of policy against us because that's not what we're about. We're the light of liberty unto the nations, don't you know? This kind of thing. And if the, just imagine if that's how it had been played. And in fact, you know, here's what, I forget if I said this on your show or somebody else's, so sorry if I'm being too redundant, but forget Al Gore, okay? Forget Al Gore. Just if it had not been Cheney and Rumsfeld and the neoconservatives, but if it had just been Bush and Colin Powell up there and that Colin Powell had been the primary advisor and foreign policy counselor to the president instead of Cheney, Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz and these guys. And Powell is essentially a Rockefeller Republican, a George H.W. Bush Republican. And he would never have, you know, he, he might have said, yeah, we got to occupy Afghanistan, but he would have never done this whole war on terrorism around the region. You know, he, he's, you know, much more likely he would have invited Saddam Hussein back into the fold and figured out a way to normalize relations with Iraq uh, as long as they would promise to uh, keep Al-Qaeda down and out and that kind of deal. So none of this had to happen at all. I mean, this was the whole thing about turning the whole Middle East over the way that they did it. It was a very specific policy of a very small and specific group of people, uh, the neoconservatives and the leaders, the very top leadership of the White House itself, but without really any other major constituency for it. So it really just goes to show that it didn't have to be this way at all. 
And if, you know, if Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz and them had just stayed Democrats, then the 21st century would not have ever been this way. All right, let's bring things up to the present day and indeed to the future. May 2020, there's something very significant happening in New York City. Involved. When was the last time you were in New York? Uh, I gave a talk there in 2010, on September 11th, 2010. All right, so, so it will have been 10 years. Okay, I've already mentioned it in my interview with Dave Smith, and of course, everybody listening already subscribes to my email newsletter. Hint, hint. Um, I do. Yeah, good, good for you, Scott, because then you saw yourself mentioned in there. How about that? I did. I, I said something about what's coming up in May 2020 that I can hardly believe is happening, and it's an amazing thing. So you tell the folks about it. Well, I'm going to debate Bill Crystal, who is, I think, and I'm not trying to be, you know, judgmental here. I think this is just descriptive, not normative. He is the worst warmonger in the world. And I'm going to see if I can rip him up in front of people. Well, it's going to be interesting because Scott, as you may know, has a little bit of knowledge in this area. And there's so much excitement about the event that it's sold out in four days, which is by far the fastest. And I thought it was two. Well, whichever I heard for, but it doesn't matter because the point is they had barely begun to publicize it. I hadn't said a word about it and it was already sold out. I hadn't even, so the publicity was barely started and it's somehow, like the information had sort of trickled out and it already sold out. So if you're thinking, doggone it, I've got to be there for this, which of course indeed you do, then I have good news. Gene Epstein is moving the event to a larger venue, which he will announce soon. So that means tickets are available once again. And to get the tickets, you go to thesohoforum.org, thesohoforum.org, and scroll down till you find this May 2020 event and get your tickets. So mm-hmm. obviously well, we're not going to have- Epstein, he got straight to the point with the question too. And that is- Oh yeah, willingness- what, yeah t- tell people what the resolution is, right? Yeah, a willingness to intervene- and wage regime change in other countries is good for the United States. Yeah. For or exactly. against. Right. So, all right. I'm glad yeah. we're not going to beat around the bush or anything. Right, right, right. Exactly. Very straightforward. So that's going to be, it's just going to be a great thing. And I, the thing is, Scott, unfortunately, I can't be there. I haven't told you this, but I can't be there. I already have a, well, I'll tell you why I can't be there. And it's absolutely killing me. But I'll do whatever I can to promote this thing, get people there. I'll do everything I can other than be there. But when we go off the air, I'll tell you the reason and you'll understand. But yeah, sure. uh, it's I'm absolutely sure killing me. Fine. Plus, look, the next time you debate Bill Crystal, run the date by me first next time, will you? All right. But I'll see what I can anyway, do. Anyway, yeah, thesohoforum.org. You know, and, and let me say in advance, I'm going to try my best. And I apologize in advance if I fall short of doing everything I can. But I'll do everything I can to try to... Uh, Hold up the anti-war position for the people who got it right. We have confidence in you, and we're not going to do the Monday morning quarterback thing. You, you will have done, no doubt, the best job any of us could have done. Uh, but I'm sure it's going to be more than Crystal is used to dealing with. It's not 30-second talking points on CNN. So it's going to be a lot of fun and interesting. So, yeah. And please, everybody nobody should taunt Crystal on Twitter. Don't taunt him. He's already been taunted enough, and we don't want to drive him away here. Right. We want this debate to happen. What's the matter with you people? <laughs> I mean, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but it's misplaced in this case. Just sit and wait. Let the debate take place. So at tomwoods.com slash 1490, I'll have a link to the Soho Forum. So if you'd like to get tickets, I'll have a link there. 
I'll have a link to uh, Scott's Ron Paul book. And of course, I'll have a link to, uh, which you should be reading around the time of the 9-11 anniversary, uh, Scott's book, Fool's Errand, about the war in Afghanistan. So all that stuff will be at tomwoods.com slash 1490. Audiobook um, available too. Oh, is it really? Okay, Is it available through Audible or through some other? Yeah, through Audible. Through Audible. Okay. So you can get the audiobook through tomwoodsaudio.com. Uh, you get that audiobook for free because they give you your first one for free. So go do that. All right. Thank you, Scott, for your service. Thank you, Tom. Really appreciate it. All right, folks. On an unrelated note, a new website by a Tom Woodshow listener called businessresilienceinsights.com tries to help entrepreneurs navigate the business cycle. Equipped with the knowledge we have from the Austrian School of Economics, it tries to apply that in a way that's practical and helpful to people who are entrepreneurs. And in fact, the author at the site says, I truly believe Austrian economists have a lot more to offer than just theory to entrepreneurs who are facing a Fed-induced business cycle. So on this blog, you'll encounter all kinds of topics, Austrian economics, advice, current events, cryptocurrencies, and you'll also get practical advice in sizing up expansions, staffing appropriately, planning substitutions, all kinds of stuff. So very, very valuable indeed. The site, again, is businessresilienceinsights.com. I'll link to that at tomwoods.com slash 1490, our show notes page for today. And um, don't forget, I'm going to help you out if you want to start a website or a blog. I'm going to help you out. Woods here is going to help you out. I'm going to send some people your way, and I'm going to give you some tutorials to help you get up and running quickly. I'm going to give you membership in my private bloggers group where you can get help when you need it. And a, a link to your site from my site is going to juice you up there in the search engine results. So how do you get all these juicy bonuses? Head over to tomwoods.com slash publicity. If you get your hosting through my link, you get all those nice bonuses for you. Okay, that's it. What's happening tomorrow? Oh, Phil Labonte of All That Remains joins me tomorrow. That is a fun conversation. Do not miss that one. I'll see you then. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.